Welcome to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I'm Darcy Staniforth, an American Studies scholar and lecturer, but I also love to explore the paranormal. On this podcast, we explore the paranormal, but also the occult, the strange, and the unknown as we try and decode the mysteries around these topics. Today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast, we are decoding Bigfoot with Dr. Adam Golub and comedian and podcaster Ryan Singer. I sit down with these two guests and we discuss Bigfoot in very different ways. One from the view of academia and one from a personal encounter. Bigfoot looms large in our culture, so I wanted to sit down and talk about what he means to American culture. And that's exactly what I did with our first guest, Dr. Adam Golub. Bigfoot is not really the stuff of horror. Bigfoot is the stuff of wonder. Today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast, I am so excited to have Dr. Adam Golub, who is a professor of American studies at Cal State University, Fullerton. Adam teaches on things from music to adolescence, but we asked him here today because Adam loves to teach about monsters in American culture. So welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thank you for having me. So, Adam, for people that are new to the world of American studies, can you give a brief description about what this field is? Because I think for a lot of people, they think it's Abraham Lincoln riding in on a bald eagle carrying an American flag and a copy of the Constitution, but it is very different than that. So can you give a little elevator pitch for American studies? Sure. That's a great question. You know, American studies, I like to think of it as American history with a focus on culture in particular. In American studies, we are very much interested in how people experience the world in their everyday lives, uh, how they experience it in different time periods, and in particular, how culture shapes their sense of who they are. American studies, I would say, is the history of the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves in American culture. So a field that I think for a lot of other people becomes much more accessible than your everyday United States history. I think there's a lot of relevance in American studies. It's a field where we try to think about what are the various ways that our students encounter uh, culture in their everyday lives. Maybe it's through thinking about the suburbs or thinking about nature or thinking about technology or thinking about music. And we actually organize courses around these topics to give students a more critical lens for thinking about uh, their world and also for thinking about how the past informs the present. So speaking of how you view your world, when did Bigfoot first enter your world? You know, I encountered Bigfoot in my imagination at a very young age. I grew up in New Jersey, in suburban slash rural New Jersey in the 1970s. And I must have first encountered Bigfoot through just uh, TV shows like In Search Of, kind of library books. Yes, In Search Of was one of my favorite shows. And I actually spent quite a bit of time with some friends trying to figure out if we could find or catch sight of, I don't know if we plan to capture Bigfoot, but we sent out on these little kinds of of journeys to try to do a sighting of Bigfoot. My parents lived in a house kind of set in the middle of the woods. And so we would descend down the hill in our backyard and just kind of walk through the woods searching for Bigfoot. And 
to the point where I actually would write short stories about Bigfoot too. I think it was something that just captured my creative imagination. And I suppose in, a, in, in some kind of way, it was planting the seeds for what I do now, which is I get, actually now I get paid money to just think and talk about monsters, Bigfoot included. So what made you want to start teaching on monsters and cryptids and the strange and paranormal in the first place? Because I teach courses that focus so much on American culture and the stories that we like to tell ourselves about ourselves, I just found that monsters become this amazing window onto the larger society. That when we study these creatures of our imagination, we can gain access to how we view ourselves, whether we're thinking about the emergence and Americanization of of Frankenstein and vampires like Dracula, thinking about the zombie, thinking about King Kong, Godzilla, the werewolf. We look at different monsters in this class and we kind of put them into a broader context to try to understand why did this monster show up at this particular time period and why did it become so popular? What does Bigfoot tell us (laughs) about American culture and what warnings does he offer us? Yeah, I'm glad you used the word warnings. The root word of monster, the idea of monstrum or monster, this word, this means to warn. It's a kind of portent or an omen. It's supposed to tell us something. So at its core, the concept of the monster is this thing that is meant to teach us. We are supposed to learn something from it. There's actually quite a bit of scholarship on Bigfoot. Is some really interesting work that's been done out there. And what we see is that it, it seemed to be in the 1950s where there was a kind of surge in Bigfoot lore, Bigfoot sightings uh, centered around the Pacific Northwest, California. And we see this kind of increased popularity of Bigfoot as a figure of fascination in the news media, also as a figure of fascination in a lot of these what was called true adventure magazines that were very popular in the 1950s. And even though the idea of the Sasquatch, the wild man, had been around for a long time, these types of creatures have been around for a while, but Bigfoot became big in the 1950s, (laughs) representing a much more kind of wild, self-reliant, authentic existence. And I think in some ways, Bigfoot is popular in the 1950s because he or she is in direct opposition to the dominant culture at the time. Bigfoot is not domesticated. Bigfoot is not doing a cookout in the backyard. Bigfoot is not participating in this culture of the home. And I think Mm. in terms of thinking about the 1950s, thinking about new ideas about masculinity, uh, new ideas about the father, the husband, the working man, This is a much more contained vision of masculinity that locates successful manhood in the suburbs, in a nuclear family, the man in the gray flannel suit in the corporate world. So what do we have in the middle of all this? Here comes Bigfoot, right? Here comes Bigfoot walking into this new landscape of uh, gender identity and essentially embodying the opposite of all of those things. 
Bigfoot is not contained in the world of the suburbs. Bigfoot doesn't have a job. Bigfoot is not working up the corporate ladder. And Bigfoot, in terms of many of the sightings and the lore surrounding Bigfoot, Bigfoot is a loner. Bigfoot is is independent. Then does the Bigfoot of the 1950s pose a threat to the housewife of the 1950s? (laughs) The cultural obsession with Bigfoot seems to be a kind of gender and class specific type of fascination. So you're rightfully asking, where does the 1950s housewife fit into Bigfoot in this storyline? And I'm not sure that she actually does. There's not really a place for the housewife in the Bigfoot world. So I wonder if that is another kind of way in which Bigfoot provides a kind of escape from the the everyday. I asked earlier, why, why are we so, why do we need monsters? And I think we, in part, we need Bigfoot because the whole idea of Bigfoot really turns on the question of, of belief and faith. And uh, mm. I think this is another aspect of Bigfoot that is really important to consider, which is that when we talk about Bigfoot, we often use this language of, of religion and faith, right? What is the most common question? Do you believe in Bigfoot? Do you believe? Yeah. Do you believe? Just like, do you believe in UFOs? Do you believe in Loch Ness monsters? I, I find it fascinating that we use certain religious rhetoric with these types of monsters. No one says, hey, do you believe in Godzilla? They don't say, oh, do you believe in, uh, do you believe in Dracula? Like, you don't really get asked that question, right? But you get asked, right. do you believe in Bigfoot? So what's at the heart of this? There's something about Bigfoot that appeals to our This need to have faith in the unknown, whether we are religious or not, Bigfoot is this kind of alternative, like spiritual system that kind of keeps you focused on this world of the mysterious, this world of the unknown. And in a sense, we could spend our whole lives being in search of Bigfoot and never finding Bigfoot. But that's okay. It's the quest, and it's being faithful to that search. It's being committed to your belief, to your evidence, to your will to understand that is the most important. And I think, in other words, Bigfoot provides the materials to construct a different sense of your own identity in a safe way, because you actually don't really have to go out. You don't have to be searching for Bigfoot every single day. You don't have to be trying to find him. It's the belief in Bigfoot alone that, in a sense, provides that fuel for shaping your sense of who you are, what you value, and who you might want to be. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes. And that's such a strong point about you can absolutely have belief identity tied to your belief in Bigfoot and cryptids and UFOs and the paranormal without having to go out and actively experience it. And that is a very specific form of belief, but also a really powerful one as well. It's very powerful. It's very formative. You know, I keep wondering, I mentioned a story earlier about my fascination with with Bigfoot as a kid. But I think for me, Bigfoot represented a kind of sense that there's still a lot of the world that is that is unknown. And that's that's exciting. It's not necessarily scary, right? There's something exciting about the unknown. And, 
you know, when I used to write short stories about Bigfoot, they weren't scary stories. Like I actually would imagine meeting and befriending Bigfoot. And, you know, and in fact, I had one story where Bigfoot confided in me that he was really lonely and that he was sad that everyone would run away whenever they saw them because he was actually just looking for a mate. This was maybe a little strange psychologically for me to be writing about at that age too, but Bigfoot was lonely. So I think for me, I was really interested in Bigfoot as a kind of uh, representative of the unknown, but look, I think also as a kind of imaginary companion, an imaginary friend, an imaginary source of, of comfort who could relate to what you are experiencing. Bigfoot is isolated. Bigfoot is alone. Bigfoot is wild and apart from culture, but you know, perhaps there's something not quite there making Bigfoot content. And so I think in some ways I could connect to that. I could relate to that. I do encounter a lot of us, myself included, that as kids felt isolated, felt kind of more on the like the loner end or maybe we were, you know, picked on or trying to like from a very early age, kind of in a sense, trying to find our tribe, trying to find the other people that liked what we liked. But we, through doing this, get to retain that sense of childhood wonder. We never lose it. Right. We don't have to put aside childish things when it comes to Bigfoot. We can carry our faith in Bigfoot with us all the way through life. Oh, absolutely. Because really, when it at the end of the day, who does it hurt? It doesn't hurt anyone. There's something about that that is a kind of uh, creative way of living your life that is is very appealing, and uh, I think personally is very helpful too, healthy. Uh, but no, I think I think monsters do provide this kind of escape. But it's not like we're completely escaping from who we are. The escape is actually allowing us to to revisit and affirm who we think we are and who we want to be. Absolutely. And I think that is very notable. Bigfoot at, at, at its core is this kind of friendly and yet evasive creature. And, you know, if we're scared of Bigfoot, that's kind of our own issue that we have to deal with because Bigfoot's not necessarily trying to scare us, right? Bigfoot's not jumping out and saying, boo, Bigfoot's not clawing into your tent and eviscerating you. Bigfoot is just living its best life. Bigfoot is not really the stuff of horror. Bigfoot is the stuff of wonder. Mm. You know what? That, That I think is such a really important point. He is not the stuff or they are not the stuff of horror, but the stuff of wonder. Oh, I I love I love that thought. And and then thinking about this authentic life that you just bring up. That Bigfoot, like you said, Bigfoot is not even though I have heard some accounts that have not been so peaceful. Many of the accounts are of this creature, this cryptid that wants to be left to just live. And I think that At the heart of it, thinking we just all want, we want to be able to be our authentic selves and live a peaceful existence without people bothering us. (laughs) More than ever today, we are just confounded by this question of what does it mean to live your most authentic life when we live in an age that is so mediated by our cyber selves, the internet, by social media. 
you know, how, what does it mean to be authentic in our lives today? What is authenticity? Where is it to be found in American culture today? On the one hand, Bigfoot embodies a certain kind of authenticity and uh, a creature that is apart from, apart from civilization and culture. Now, on the other hand, Bigfoot is part of our popular culture. Bigfoot has been wildly commodified. I have my students very kindly have year after year after taking the monsters class brought little knickknacks and souvenirs from their travels related to Bigfoot. I have Bigfoot shot glasses. I have a Bigfoot deodorant that you can hang from the rearview mirror of your car, right? I have um, Bigfoot refrigerator magnets. I have a bumper sticker that says Bigfoot for president. I have uh, Christmas ornaments that uh, have, have Bigfoot on them. Like Bigfoot has become one of the most kind of commodified, mass reproduced monsters in American culture. So it's kind of strange to say, oh yeah, it's this authentic, natural being, but it's also this material thing that is like saturated our popular culture. Bigfoot is everywhere. You can order Bigfoot action figures and Bigfoot sweaters and Bigfoot t-shirts and all of these things. And what that leads me to think about is we're talking about this natural, authentic self, but then how highly commodified it's been. And then I think about the commodification of nature, right? And how we establish, because colonialism, I think you have to think about colonialism when you think about Bigfoot and the taking over of this natural space in the United States. And then we've done so much in taking it over we have to then designate nature areas that we can go to and that people cannot use for the things that we want to build on. And I think also, too, about there are billion-dollar industries built around getting outside and hiking and returning to nature. But just remember, you can't return to nature unless you have all the newest gear and all of the state-of-the-art sleeping bags and tents. So I think it tells us something about that level of commodification as well. This idea that there's something that is naturally nature, so to speak, is is not really true. Like we have kind of different versions of what we consider nature in the natural world to be, uh, depending, like you said, on our uh, our interests, our values, our desires to uh, to do something with those natural spaces. So I think Bigfoot is out there. Um, kind of reminding us that uh, we still want to believe in a uh, absolutely pure version of nature. So in thinking about culture and that idea, do you think it's important to American culture whether or not Bigfoot is real? <laughs> I think about this question a lot in terms of uh, how much longer... Can we sustain the Bigfoot lore in the absence of bones or a carcass? And I actually suspect that we can continue this for quite a long time. We've had numerous television shows made and remade and, and, and constantly appearing that try to find Bigfoot, that are in search of Bigfoot. And again, I don't think, I don't think we need Bigfoot to ever be real. I just think we need to believe that Bigfoot is real. And 
if we never find the evidence that we really want, mm. and as long as we believe, uh, Bigfoot will continue to be real, just like UFOs will continue to be real, the Loch Ness Monster, this idea of, of, um, of belief is at the core of it. And this is, again, why, in some ways, I think Bigfoot really could be studied as its own kind of American religion. It really fulfills a lot of this kind of criteria for what an organized spiritual belief system entails. So here's the sound I heard. So Adam, we've got a couple questions from our audience out in the Twitterverse. And first, a couple different users had questions about Bigfoot and Sasquatch legends in other cultures. Mm. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. That is an excellent question. So Sasquatch and Bigfoot are North American phenomena that actually are part of a longer tradition that we see across cultures and across time periods, which is the the kind of tradition or legend of the so-called wild man. You know, you can go from uh, East Africa, Malaysia, the Andes, medieval Europe. Different cultures have always had a certain kind of mythology or folklore or uh, literature and art version of the wild man, which is typically a, a kind of human-like creature, generally, usually very hairy, that kind of uh, lives on this this borderland area between nature and civilization. Mm. Now, sadly, this wild man kind of mythology has also had real-world effects. It's been deployed in very kind of, of, of racist ways in terms of conceiving of the so-called monstrous race. A lot of European colonialism drew on these legends of a monstrous race of, of wild men in North and South America that they believed they were going to encounter. Uh, it also has been used to kind of justify the, uh, the conquest of Native peoples and the, the kind of colonization of Native peoples. And so it's been used to kind of enact more oppressive actions on these groups of people. Yeah, and, and that is something I think that folks sometimes don't always think about or don't want to think about. They don't want to think about the fact that these stories, these legends, or in certain cultures, things we take as facts can often be used to harm, dominate, and decimate other people that we see as less than human, less than civilized. Bigfoot is a very, you know, in many ways, a very romantic figure, but Bigfoot is part of a longer tradition of, of conceiving of, of certain actual human beings as animal-like, as wild, as uncivilized, and therefore unworthy of respect and equal treatment and inclusion in certain societies. And that in itself is important to remember as we consider our beliefs about Bigfoot and examine our own beliefs around Bigfoot. So Twitter user at SkatingWookie asks, what do you think about the theory that Bigfoot is actually an interdimensional time traveler? And that's why we haven't found any skeletal remains. You know, I actually 
like that idea. I haven't quite heard that exact theory, but that would really explain a lot. I think that would explain this ongoing um, absence of evidence. And I think that also brings in these questions, and not just about the borderland between nature and civilization, but this kind of idea that Bigfoot dwells in a separate plane of existence. So if they're doing that, I think that's fantastic. That's that's a great survival technique. I would love to just slip out of, of time here and there, especially when I have a lot of papers to grade. I'd love to just go kind of skip over to another dimension and 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 see if the problem resolves itself. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all just like, you know what? I'm not feeling this dimension. I got to slip to another one real quick. Well, Adam, thank you so much for spending time today talking to me about Bigfoot monsters and what they mean for not just American culture, but our global culture at large. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Darcy. I have really enjoyed our conversation. For our second guest, Ryan Singer, Bigfoot is far from a monster in the pages of scholarship. We sat down and talked about the life-changing experience Ryan had in the summer of 2019. And then all of a sudden, I hear a high-pitched, guttural scream from directly behind me. Today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast, I am so excited to have not just someone I am a fan of, but I'm a friend of as well. He is an incredible stand-up comedian And his podcast, Me and Paranormal You, is one of my favorite podcasts out there. Hello, you're listening to Me and Paranormal You with your host, Ryan Singer, because it's more fun to believe. Please welcome to the Mysteries Decoded podcast, Ryan Singer. Ryan, I'm so glad you're here with us today. Oh, that was very kind. Uh, Thank you, Darcy. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I am so glad we get to sit down and talk today about a pretty incredible experience that you had. But before we get started on that, I want to learn a little bit more about your journey. And I want the audience to know a little bit more about your journey so we can kind of set the stage for them. I started doing stand-up comedy probably a little over 18 years ago. And then when I was very young, early on, I ended up having a relationship with a woman who really blasted me open as far as paranormal experiences go. With This relationship, do you want to get a little bit more specific about what things you witnessed in her presence that really just changed the game for you? Sure. The the unbelievability factor is high on this for especially those who are skeptical and even those who are believers. But in her presence, I experienced what can only be classified as shape-shifting. I was the witness to shape-shifting. And this uh, this kind of profound paranormal experience has the effect of making you feel like you've gone insane when you first experience it. At least it did for me. And all, all the other people I've talked to over the years about their first profound paranormal experience, there's a lot of similarity here. You feel like the reality as you know it has become instantly shattered as if someone took a hammer to a to a glass window. And in the moment, you feel like there's no way you'll ever be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again when it comes to your own sanity. Uh, luckily for me and for a lot of other people, eventually you move past that sensation and that feeling, and then you start to critically think about what happened 
Uh, I wasn't intoxicated. I, you know, I don't have any history of, you know, mental illness when it comes to hallucinations or anything like that or any other mental illness, really. So what, what, what happened here? Well, the only thing that's left uh, in my particular journey was to understand, okay, what happened here was the unexplainable, at least by materialistic science standards and the physical sciences as we know them now, what is allowable or what is possible in, in this reality. And as I transitioned into acceptance over uh, my experiences, um, I kept them to myself for a while, and as most people do. And then, because there's a little bit of shame attached to it. I mean, because you understand how people are going to look at you. I can't just go around, you know, the day after telling everybody, uh, my girlfriend is a shapeshifter. I, right. Did you know my, uh, what's your girlfriend do? Well, when she's not working as a rocket scientist, she shapeshifts. You know, like <laughs> the, yeah, so that event really spurred me onto my journey. And one time she appeared to be nine months pregnant, but it was only for a day. And another time she just for a flash appeared to be a completely different woman. And that was the first thing that happened. And that's what made me feel like I lost my mind. And then the second time, the the pregnancy scare, as maybe we'll call it, I was excited and overjoyed about the opportunity to have another experience with her. What led you to feel comfortable about sharing this experience? Uh, first, I shared them probably with just a, a few comedian friends who I knew were into weird stuff. Because mm -hmm. lots of comedians are into the paranormal and the strange. I mean, because as you know, we're living in the fringes. Right. And... For good and bad, the same rules don't necessarily apply, at least to the minds of the people that are floating in these spaces. So the rules of, you know, oh, I can't talk about this stuff. Everyone think all crazy. That's Those don't really apply to the people that you're meeting in this space. Right. So I slowly but surely started sharing the information with some some friends of mine in the comedy world and and then eventually decided I have to bring it up on stage and see what happens. So it was really a testament to like the support of the community and at least some of the relationships I had formed at that point early on to, to be able to, to feel comfortable even discussing it privately, let alone publicly on stage. Well, and this first experience changed your worldview, changed your perspective, and launched you down this path of exploring. But on today's episode, we're talking about Bigfoot and Sasquatch, and you had another life-changing experience. Can you talk a little bit about your experience and what happened? Sure thing. Early in the summer of 2019, I was asked to be part of a research team that was planning on making a documentary about a specific location in Florida that had various, all kinds of paranormal, unknown, unexplainable phenomena occurring on the property. I jumped at the opportunity to do so. I'd never been in the field for an extended period of time like that. And so I was very excited. And I was also scared. I, that's the thing that I think people should know. When it comes to paranormal investigators, not all of us are these fearless you know, nothing can ever scare me. I won't even watch a scary movie alone. And I don't know if that's a myth or if people just assume that or not, but, you know, I could be a scaredy cat, as they say. 
So we go there and we're having an amazing time. And the homeowners on the property are these wonderful people, just, you know, your normal people who have been experiencing all kinds of activity and some of it terrorizing. And they're trying to figure out what's going on and they want to share the truth with people. And like, hey, we're not crazy. This is happening. We didn't ask for any of this. And we're out there. We're looking for all kinds of paranormal activity, UFOs, orbs, ghosts, cryptids, Sasquatch, other creatures, interdimensional portal, kind of out in the middle of nowhere in Florida. So we've got a lot of ground to cover in five days, and we're, there's no way we're going to cover all of it. So we kind of stick to the hot spots, the reported locations where the most activity was happening. Okay. Can you paint a picture of what the surroundings, is it wooded? Is it swampland? Is it cleared out land? Like what, what kind of landscape are we looking at on this property? That's a great question. The, the landscape of this particular property was thick with trees. Mm. I mean, we're talking nothing but just trees everywhere. The hills are undulating. The terrain, every once in a while, will have a stream kind of sift through it. Um, there's a lot of like creeks and crevices and hills and bumps. And it's not ideal terrain to easily move about. Okay. And especially after Hurricane Michael came through and really decimated a lot of the a lot of the area. And there were a lot of felled trees. So navigating the property had become very difficult, even more so than it had been previously when there weren't felled trees everywhere across the 40-acre property. So this is not just some flat track of land someone could sneak on to pull some kind of stunt and like disappear off of really quickly. No. In fact, this property was, I didn't think that my Toyota Camry was going to be able to get to the property once I turned off the main highway to get there, to drive oh, wow. there because it, was, it wasn't it was a paved road for the last mile or so of driving. So I was concerned that I'd pop a tire, that my car wouldn't even be able to make it. So this is a very difficult terrain. And I was staying in something called the Sugar Shack, which is a small shed that was converted into a sleeping space with Ed Brown, who was in charge, who put this whole thing together. He's a paranormal investigator with mainly a focus on Bigfoot over the years. It was the third night of the investigation. And one of the rules was that we were never supposed to be alone on the property, especially at night, without one of the armed security guards. And this particular night, the armed security guards had gone back to their hotel because the, the day and the night was over. Wait, can we stop for just a moment? Armed security guards? Because let me tell you, the investigations I've been on don't ever require armed security guards. Why why armed security guards? That was exactly my reaction when I was first told about this. I was like, okay, are we uh, are we going like G.I. Joe here? Are we overreacting? Like we're doing a paranormal investigation. We don't need armed security guards with us, right? Well, it turns out that the homeowners, it was one of their conditions of allowing the documentary and allowing us to be there because they knew that being on the property, especially at night, they were worried about everyone's safety because of the type of activity that they've been experiencing 
was of the threatening nature. Mm. Now, I was never a Bigfoot person. I was more of a, you know, let's go look for ghosts and try to make contact with the other side. I had just recently gotten into going out into the woods and trying to find evidence of Bigfoot before this happened. So I also was a little skeptical about the armed security guards. Then when I get there, I sit down, I I meet the homeowners and, and we chat for a couple hours with everybody. And I immediately realized, thank goodness they want armed security guards here. And I'm not one of these grown, tough guy men who owns a gun. I'm a comedian from Dayton, Ohio, <laughs> who couldn't even watch scary movies as a kid. <laughs> anyway, on the third night of the investigation, I, I was invited to sleep in the house to stay in a room called the Dream Chamber. This was a room where, apparently, people have the craziest, most intense dreams of their life. And so she says, do you want to sleep in the dream chamber? I was like, yes, I'm going to sleep in the dream chamber. And I'm the type of person who doesn't have much dream recall at all. Mm. And so Ed Brown and I start walking back down to the sugar shack because I need to grab my toiletry bag and my dream journal. So we walk down there. We're having a really great time. And to paint the picture a little bit, this is a slightly downhill Florida sandy dirt driveway through the trees that is winding, winding like a snake, but not a coiled snake. And maybe 100, 150 yards down the driveway is like a football field is where the sugar shack is. So we get down there, we walk into the sugar shack. There's trail cams we have set up that are motion activated. The trail cam directly across the driveway from the sugar shack picks up all the action coming in and out of the, the door of the sugar shack, picks Ed and I walking into the sugar shack, picks us up. It activates as we walk by it. I'm in there for maybe five minutes. Okay. You know, Ed and I are talking, hanging out, you know, shooting the breeze. I grab my toiletry bag, my dream journal and a flashlight. And I walk out of the sugar shack to head back up the driveway. So I, I, I'm, I'm turning to my left to walk back up the driveway towards the house, which you can barely see. You can't even really see anything because it's after midnight at this point in the middle of Florida. And you can see they have a really bright floodlight uh, like on the front of their house. That is, okay. if I'm walking up the driveway, it is shining from my left to my right because that's where their front yard is. Okay. As I'm walking out of the, the front door of the sugar shack, Ed says, be careful. And I remember like hesitating for a second in my step thinking, that's weird. Why would he say be careful? Uh, that's just, it just struck me as strange. I'm taking a very short walk up this driveway to go back into the house. We had, cause I had a great night. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a, an abrupt, you know, warning from Ed due to my state of mind being so carefree and light at the moment. Yeah. And so I walk off the little front porch Ed closes the door, double latches the locks. I turn to my left to start walking up the driveway and honestly probably would not have had any apprehension at all in that moment unless he, if, if he never said that to me, I get about six or seven steps up the driveway And then all of a sudden, from directly behind me, I hear the high-pitched, but also guttural, and it had like vibrato to it, like a scream, 
yell. And it instantly froze me in my tracks as I was walking because I'm not expecting anything, let alone this. And it makes me freeze in a way that... uh, It makes me freeze in a way that is almost acceptance of my own fate, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, this is how I go out. Wow. Right? And I have never been physically as afraid as I was in this moment. And what I mean by that is the difference between psychological terror and physical uh, terror. Mm. I felt the physical fear in my body. I instantly knew that I was the bottom of the food chain. Mm. And my reality in the moment was something just screamed at me. And it specifically felt like it screamed at me. So in the moment, I did a couple things simultaneously, all in like a a split second. Mm -hmm. I was going to scream for help from Ed. And then while I was gearing up my scream for help to Ed by just screaming Ed, I realized I don't want Ed to come out because he's closer to this creature than I am. Whatever this thing is that just threatened me is closer to Ed if Ed walks out of that door. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I'm screaming Ed and I'm trying to also muzzle my own scream of Ed's name in that moment. Sure. And then the other thing I was doing simultaneously, although this sounds weird, to describe it, I was trying to scream the word avalanche. Avalanche was the code word used by the security team that if anything was ever really bad or we felt like we were in imminent danger, we yell the word avalanche and they will have fingers on the trigger ready to shoot something. And so I'm trying to yell avalanche. At the same time, I'm trying to yell Ed and not yell Ed. And then I'm realizing the security team is back at the hotel. There is no avalanche. Oh, right. So I'm yelling Ed, not yelling Ed. I'm yelling avalanche, realizing I can't yell avalanche. So my yell sounded, my scream, it it was probably the most meekest yet most powerful, profound scream I've ever made, but also the most ridiculous. Sure. And so then I turn immediately and I start running Mm -hmm. as fast as I can up this driveway. And... I'm trembling. I'm sprinting as fast as my legs will will muster. And about halfway up the driveway, I do probably the bravest thing I've ever done in my life. I simply just turn my head around as I'm running to see how close it is to me. Mm. And I turn very quickly my head as I'm running, and I don't see anything except darkness, which was, I guess, somewhat relieving. I get to the little fence that surrounds their front yard. I struggle with the gate to get it open, which I thought was going to be the death of me, like literally. I finally get the gate open. I get in the gate. I try to close the gate. It won't close. And I'm like, this, there's no time to close the Ugh. gate, man. What are you doing? And then like my mother's voice is in the back of my head. This isn't your house. You should close the gate. Don't be rude. And then also, like, subconsciously, I think there was this part of me, like, if you leave the gate open, you're inviting this thing to come, symbolically. I get to- Sure. I don't even think I got the gate fully closed. I finally just go to the front door. Luckily, it's not locked. I get back in the house. I slam the door closed. I lock it. I put up the door guard. They have one of those, like, cane sticks 
that wedge the doors. They use yeah. those on all of the doors of their house every night when they go to sleep. They have protective, very thick wooden shutters that they padlock close that cover all of the windows of their house at night because they've had so many experiences of some creature or creatures banging on their walls as they try to sleep at 1.30 in the morning, making threatening like yells and just banging, shaking the house. And um, so they have all these protective measures inside the house to try to feel safer. And so I get in the house and one of the researchers who was part of the documentary is still awake, standing in the kitchen, staring at me as if I am a ghost. And I can't Mm. speak. I'm trembling. All the hair on my body is standing up. I'm crying a little bit. I'm having a terrifying meltdown. And he goes, oh my God, what happened to you? Mm. And I realized in that moment that I was still standing way too close to the front door for my liking. And instantly I'm terrified that like the door is going to start banging and I'm right next to it. But being, you know, the polite boy that my mother raised, I take off my shoes as quickly as I can. And I get away from the door. I, I look at him and I say, I just, just, it just it yelled at me. And he's like, what, what happened? What happened? I was like, it yelled at me. You know, like, I don't, I don't know what happened. He's like, can you recreate the yell? And I tried my best in the moment to like recreate the yell, which obviously brought Carolyn, the wife out of their bedroom. <laughs> Cause it's like 1231 in the morning mm. on like a Wednesday and I'm in the kitchen trying to recreate an unknown creature's scream yell from the middle of the woods. Right. She came out of the room because she thought the other guy was having a heart attack or a stroke. And mm. she, she's walking out of the room. She's like, oh my God, are you okay? And then she sees me and she's like, oh my God, you saw it. And she rushes over to me and, and gives me a hug. And I was like, I, I didn't see it, but I heard it. It screamed at me. She's like, I'm so sorry, Ryan. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry you had to experience this. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But now you know it's real. And I was like, you know, I believed you before. And this is one of those situations where I wish I didn't have to have the hard evidence. I was up till about the sun came up, just trying to distract myself in any way possible, just terrified of the experience, feeling like that I was being watched, that it was just a mere feet away from me, like it was on the other side of the wall from me wherever I went. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about the moment it happened as well is it should be on camera. Mm. I told you that Ed and I walk into the sugar shack, the motion activated camera trail cam picks us up walking down the driveway into the sugar shack. Mm -hmm. And then we're in there for five minutes or so. So it stops recording. Now, when I walk out of the sugar shack, the camera should just activate because there's motion in front of it. Right. There is no footage from the motion activated camera trail cam of me leaving the sugar shack. What? For some reason it doesn't activate. Right. Which is so aggravating. And, and anybody who is familiar with paranormal investigations and this phenomena, they understand this is part of, this is part of the fabric. And there's always the technical malfunctions. It doesn't pick me up leaving the sugar shack stopping in my tracks, turning around to see what just screamed at me. Mm-hmm. However, the camera does start recording as soon as I'm out of range. What you what? see on the side of the sugar shack. So to paint the picture for the listener, I walk out of the sugar shack. I turn, I'm facing the driveway. I turn to my left to walk up the driveway. The side wall 
of the sugar shack is pointing toward the house up the driveway, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Once I'm out of sight, the trail cam starts recording because there is a strange light that is cascading and almost chasing its own tail flashing around on the side of the sugar shack. Oh, what is this? Well, it is me running up the driveway with the flashlight in my hand with the light pointing behind me as I run with my arms moving up and down, if you can imagine the vision. That is the light from the flashlight coming through the darkness and hitting the side of the sugar shack. Now, why is that important? Because a light dancing around the side of a building through trees, through like thick trees and through darkness, activates the motion sensor on this camera. Me walking out of the sugar shack toward the camera and then away from the camera, stopping and then running, that motion doesn't activate it, mm-hmm. which we mm-hmm. can easily argue is a much more profound action and should much, uh, in a much more easy way, activate the motion sensor. Absolutely. So the next day, one of the security team members, this guy named Dan, he was a game warden. He is trained in tracking animals, all kinds of stuff, right? So he was an amazing member of this team. Uh, as far as identifying footprints, you know, understanding the behavior of animals and their effects on the physical environment around them. He, the next morning, has been alerted of what happened to me the night before. He's like, okay, everybody stay off the driveway. I'm going to track this. Mm. I'm going to try to recreate. And we're going to see if your story matches the physical evidence left behind. Okay. Which I'm all for. Any paranormal investigator has to immediately question everything they've experienced for the sake of the investigation, right? Absolutely. He gets down, he, he examines my shoes, so now he can identify the footprints in the sand of this driveway, of this sandy dirt. And uh, he says, okay, I've got you coming off the porch. He's like, walk me through the events as I am walking you up. Uh, away from your footprint so we can, uh, so I can examine them. So I'm telling him the story as we go through my footprints. He's like, right here, it looks like you've stopped. You shifted your weight, which would indicate you looked behind you. And then it looks like because of the imprint in the depth of the toe print here, you put all of your weight to launch yourself. This is a footprint, meaning someone has just started running. And if we move up the driveway, we can see your footprints are further apart than they are down here. And he goes, if I had to guess, I'd say you've never run faster in your entire life, considering the distance between each footprint here. Mm. And I said, yeah, I would hope I've never run faster. So we had a, a tracker verify my story, even though the camera malfunctioned even though the camera did work and you can see the flashlight cascading against the side of the building, which is indicative of my arm motions as I'm running up and down, as my arms are moving up and down as I run with the flashlight pointed behind me. And, you know, I, to be sure, I have never been the same and 
since that experience. And I started seeing a therapist, a PTSD specialized psychiatrist, not long after I got back from Florida because I was sleeping for a couple months with all of my lights on in my apartment. And I walk in on the first day and he says, okay, so what do you want to discuss? Why are you here? And I said, okay, there's three things I want to do while I'm here that I want to work on. There's this thing, there's this thing. And the third thing I'm going to save for maybe a little bit later until we establish a rapport. Cause I don't think I'm ready to tell you exactly what it is yet. And that's the Bigfoot thing, the creature experience in Florida, right? So after a few weeks of seeing him on a weekly basis, once a week, I go, okay, you kind of understand who I am now. And now I'm going to lay it on you. I'm going to tell you why I even walked through your door. Mm. And I tell him everything. And I said, listen, I know you're a man of science, right? I know... I know how this all sounds, but I'm not going to just keep it in, man. And he said, listen, I don't care what it was that made that noise at you that night. The only thing I'm concerned with as your therapist is the effect it has had on you since it happened. Mm. That's what we need to work through here. That's why we're here. I tell people, I was like, you know, we all can use therapy, right? in one way or another. And, you know, me especially, it just took Bigfoot to get me through the door. Right. So, you know, I'm very thankful that Bigfoot got me through the right? door. Because now I've been in therapy for, you know, almost a year and a half and it's had wonderful benefits uh, in my life in, in many ways. And I think something, you know, you and I have talked about before in our own conversations and with some other folks as well is this whole idea of, it is okay to say I had an experience that shook me so deeply that I needed to get help. And like this idea that those of us who investigate and research the paranormal are never scared and we don't get any nervousness about investigating or we're just ready to like dive all in and I have no fear. I have so much fear. And it's what Greg and Dana Newkirk say, curiosity over fear, right? And so- wanting to like, okay, I can mitigate this fear while I investigate, but that doesn't mean that we are stupid about things or careless about things or just like throw caution to the wind and like, hope, hope I don't get murdered. Fear is healthy. Like fear is what help keeps us alive. But then also having that experience that changes you in a way where you realize like, Hey, I, I need, I need some help with this because I love what your therapist said of like, it's not about what it was or what it wasn't. It's just that now your life has become unmanageable since this experience has happened. So we need to get it back to where you can have your life back. Exactly. And there's there's no shame in my therapy game. I love that. I think that's a beautiful space for us to stop. Ryan, thank you so much for spending time with me talking about your incredible experience and just being so open to being so honest and vulnerable about everything. I know that I've really enjoyed this time together and I hope you have as well. Oh, I've loved it. Thank you, Darcy. And just as a reminder to anyone out there who has experienced something that's terrifying, that's unknown, unexplainable to them, that has caused them anxiety or great depression, 
there are people out there who will listen to you, who are trained and, you know, are professionals, as they say. And just because you think it's too weird or too crazy, trust me, doesn't mean it is. That's a great reminder. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure folks out there definitely need to hear that because uh, like yourself, I'm sure there's other people out there who've been um, carrying around an experience that they've been too nervous to share. So you opening the door and letting people know that there is a path to that healing and that listening and understanding is really wonderful. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I hope you enjoyed decoding Bigfoot with us, and I look forward to you joining us next time to decode our next mystery. The Mysteries Decoded podcast is brought to you by the CW Podcast Network and is hosted and produced by me, Darcy Staniforth. Our executive producer is Jen Titus. Our audio engineer is Joel Smith. Our editor and audio producer is Joshua Sterling Manley. 